Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you. Thank you for playing this recording of the show. Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, has made it available to you. So, yes, I am something of a ghost this week, just a shade. I'm really at the World Science Fiction Convention as you stand there, on the threshold, staring down at Mahler's golden eyes. But I could not be absent from the nook or from Tales to Terrify, so via the magic of the Internet machine and Mahler, I welcome you. Come in. Join us. Sit. Relax. Find something to munch and drink deep. Tonight, we'll begin with entertainment, not business. Business, business will do later. And we will keep it at a minimum. Tonight... Munt Speaks, and we have another not-quite-a-review from him. Recently, Hollywood has run a number of Victorian-era American heroes through its mill, and in the vein of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters et al., has given us Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and has made a detective hero out of John and Francis Allen's most illustrious foster child— who became West Point's wackiest cadet until Timothy Leary in the 20th century, and I'm speaking, of course, here about Edgar Allan Poe. Tonight, the laser-focused Mr. Munt turns his critical faculties on Hollywood's Poe and gives us his assessment of The Raven.
Not a Regular Movie Review by Martin Munt The Raven Warning. I spoil plot points in this review, so don't blame me if you keep listening. I like John Cusack. I really do. I've always enjoyed his movies from 16 Candles to 2012, and I realize that liking 2012 probably puts me in the minority, but let me explain. John Cusack's character was a writer who sold 500 hardcover copies of his novel, and being very much a bottom-feeding writer myself, I consider this achievement to be a minor miracle. Plus, he's an action hero. The movie 2012 itself is batshit insane, yes, no question, but again, think of it. John Cusack plays an action hero writer. My God, I can only dream of such a lofty accomplishment, and when I do dream of such a floridly unattainable fantasy, the damned attendants invariably shoot me full of Thorazine. So I like 2012, no matter how moonbat loony it is as a movie. And I like John Cusack. He is affable, yet with a dark edge, like a tossed coin of lovable narcissism, always leaving the audience to see which side, selfless or selfish, will land up at movie's end. At least, that's how I see him, and the concept of Mr. Cusack flinging himself into the fevered maelstrom of Poe's stories as yet another action hero writer, well, again, my mind boggled. So I had high hopes. But I suppose it was inevitable that I would actually have to see the movie, and so my hopes and reality would collide. Now, hopes and reality may collide in several ways. First, like the two sides of a zipper, meshing perfectly. This way is best. Or, they can collide like the Titanic and the iceberg, and one can go down like, well, the Titanic, while the other floats serenely away, picking sheared rivets and mangled bits of iron plating out of its side, but essentially none the worse for wear. Or, they can collide like the giant Zeppelin Hindenburg, filled with dynamite when it crashed into King Kong on top of the Empire State Building, and they exploded and fell in flaming death spirals to the street below, in a fiery orgy of flaming, exploding dynamite. Okay, so maybe I took a few liberties with the ending of King Kong, but you get my point. Both hopes and reality suffer mightily from the collision. I will give you two guesses which of these I think happened when I saw The Raven. Time's up. Number three. The Hindenburg and King Kong doing blazing swan dives into Fifth Avenue, hope and reality burning like twin grease fires on the screen. Which isn't to say that there weren't positives, because it's a truism, at least in Chicago, that every grease fire greases somebody's palm, if you know what I mean. So I'll start with a positive. Now, I'm no scholar of Edgar Allan Poe, so I'm not going to say that either this thing or that thing in the movie was wrong, because I'm just not sure. Certain things seemed, how best to put it, ahistorical. Like the entire serial killer slash Poe as detective plot. I don't remember that part of Poe's biography, but I'm not going to state categorically that it's flat out wrong, you understand, because, like I said, I'm no Ph.D. in Poe. So I also can't say that Poe had or didn't have a pet raccoon named Carl. Although I was struck by the implausibility of such a thing, I won't say it wasn't true. But on the other hand, I will happily introduce Aristotle into the discussion at this point concerning Carl's role in the movie. It was in his Poetics, if I remember correctly, that Aristotle wrote, though you will have to pardon my rough and ready translation here since my ancient Greek is somewhat rusty, 
If the writer chooseth to show the audience a raccoon in the first act, then that raccoon had damn well better be used in the third act, verily and forsooth. Well, that's more or less what old Aristotle had to say about the relationship between raccoons and three-act structure, though in general he was using raccoons as a general example, and it could be exchanged for any number of other things like guns, spears, or alien spaceships, but you get the point. My point here is that Kara was woven in and out of the raven for perhaps three-quarters of the movie, and then, well, then he simply disappeared from not only the story, but from history as well. We will miss you, Carl. You brought friendship and wit and an overtly eccentric sense of utter pointlessness to the raven. If only you could have clawed the killer's face off at the end, you would have been the best character in the movie. But alas, your money shot was left on the cutting room floor. And seriously, I'm not kidding. I was really, really hoping for Carl to show up and claw the killer's face off at the end of the movie and inject a little life into the proceedings. I would have applauded. I would have laughed out loud. I would have cried tears of pure joy. I mean, the movie made no more sense than an hour and a half of watching a tasered pig twitch on the wedding reception dance floor anyway, so why shouldn't Carl save the day? But I was disappointed and Carl failed me. I do not blame Carl. I blame the Hollywood system. I suppose an uncredited raccoon could not be allowed to upstage the star of the movie. On a more positive note, I promised, however, I think I can predict major roles in future Eddie Murphy and Adam Sandler projects for Carl, because he just brought that special kind of sizzle that lights up the screen. And could an interspecies buddy movie with Jim Belushi be out of the question? Or dare I hope it, Kevin James? Picture it, Kevin and Carl meet cute. Enter an evil raccoon-hating industrialist, along with a neglected girlfriend. The lovely Blake Lively, anyone? And then obstacles, chases, last-second escapes, heroics, and eventual triumph over the power of raccoon-hating industrialism run amok. I think at one point Kevin and Carl should even have to land a 747 by themselves. It practically writes itself. Well, I for one will watch the pages of Variety for news of Carl's future career moves with great interest. But back at the movie. I suppose one always tries to guess the identity of the killer— I figured it would be simple, since the resources required to set his plans in motion would bankrupt several small countries. But alas, I failed to realize that the Raven operated in an alternate reality where anything can happen. At times, the killer, Ivan Reynolds, even seemed almost supernatural in his abilities, as when he somehow, God only knows how because I still don't, kidnapped Emily Hamilton from the middle of a crowded party, and almost literally out of Poe's arms, and did so completely unseen, and spirited her away without a trace, and with a dozen or more policemen in attendance. And then there was the instance when Mr. Reynolds, bundled in mystifying cape and shadows, leapt from the roof of a church onto another police officer, was shot at point-blank range, if not gross point-blank range, by that police officer, was missed, and then unerringly slashed the officer's throat with a knife in a maneuver that would have stirred envy in Freddy Krueger's fire-shriveled little heart. I will not belabor the amount of money it would have cost to put together the whole pit and pendulum thing, because that's just too pedantic. But seriously, he's an assistant printer at a newspaper. I think Poe went into the wrong line of work. Hell, I think I went into the wrong line of work. 
It's like Poe versus Terminator, or maybe Poe versus Alien, or maybe Poe versus Alien and Predator and Terminator all ganging up on Poe. Or maybe Bella Lugosi's super-intelligent vampire head bolted onto Darth Vader's body strapped to a nuclear-powered set of laser death cannons sealed inside an invisible megatank versus Poe. Ivan Reynolds seemed able to do anything he wanted. It was just the how of it that was left dangling. Bah humbug, you say. It's the why that's interesting, plumbing the shadowy depths of his madness. Isn't that the telltale heart of anything related to Poe? Tell us why the killer did what he did. Illuminate the dark corners of his mind. All else is irrelevant. Well, if I have Mr. Reynolds' plan straight in my poor bent little head, this was it. Mr. Reynolds loves Mr. Poe's stories so much that he kills people in order to prod Poe into writing again because Poe has writer's block, and then finally he kills Poe. The end. Well, I'm sorry, but as evil plans go, I suppose this one is evil, no question, and I guess it's a plan, but I have to say, in my opinion, it's also pretty monumentally fucking stupid. You know, for an evil genius. First of all, if I may speak from a destitute writer's point of view for a moment and suggest an alternate, more effective plan, to all you psychotic maniacs out there who have just metric fuckloads of cash available to set in motion hugely, massively, gargantuanly expensive and ridiculously complicated plans within plans within other deranged plans that require split-second timing, superhuman escapes, and virtually supernatural powers of anti-detection in order to commit your demented acts of murder, mayhem, and kidnapping in order to hopefully, and I stress hopefully, spark a favorite writer into writing something that you will enjoy, then perhaps, and I'm just saying is all, then perhaps you might just want to try instead merely fucking paying that poor fucking destitute desperate writer some of your huge, massive, gargantuan fortune so that you might, oh, I don't know, encourage him to write a story for you the old-fashioned way by just paying him, you fucking douchebag. Of course, I am not a devilishly cunning printer's assistant in 1849 with a psychopathological plan to produce a 2,000-word story, which at the time should cost about $8 my way, or eight or nine corpses and half a million dollars his way. But you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. Don't get me wrong. I realize if you take the stupid out of this movie, then you don't have a movie. And that's a problem. But here's a solution. Make a different movie that's more entertaining than watching a tasered pig twitch on the dance floor at a wedding reception for an hour and a half. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. That last part was just plain mean. I shouldn't just criticize willy-nilly. If I'm going to criticize then I should criticize constructively. So here's my idea. If you're going to delve into the crazy, then I say you should damn well own the crazy. First of all, anybody can write a movie based on stories like The Pit and The Pendulum and The Mask of the Red Death. Merest piffle, I say. What about a story like The Devil in the Belfry? Now there's a challenge. A story that raises serious issues about the Dutch question in America in Poe's time. 
Sure, nobody cares about the Dutch in America now, but what about then? Well, to be honest, I don't know if anybody really cared back then either. But apparently Poe decided to write at least one crazy story lampooning the Dutch, so my movie opens with the Dutch seeking revenge on Poe. Corpses appear in Baltimore, murdered using the methods used in Poe's stories. Poe is implicated. Police detective Fields, played by Luke Evans, suspects Poe, but cannot yet arrest him. Poe's only hope is to prove his innocence by finding the real killer. So far, so much like the actual movie. But here is where it changes. Poe finds the killer quickly in the very act of committing another heinous crime along with Detective Fields. Poe's innocence is obvious to all. A Dutchman with no connection to Poe committed the murders, his motive unknown. Except the murders continue. The cloud of suspicion gathers again over Poe's head. He runs from the police. He discovers the next murder. He sees the murderer leaving the scene. He gives chase through the nighttime underbelly of Baltimore. Poe versus killer. Until Poe finally corners him and finds, wait for it, an exact double for the first killer. A blonde, blue-eyed Dutchman. Poe cannot believe it. Twin murderers. What a great twist. Then the police break in, and in the confusion, both the killer and Poe escape. Now Poe is on the run with a completely implausible alibi, ripped straight from the grotesqueries of one of his own stories. You get the picture? Poe is alone, hunted on the mean streets of Baltimore with only his mad action hero skills and deep literary insights into the dark side of men's minds to keep him alive. What does he do? He goes to the one man he can trust, counterintuitively Baltimore police detective Fields, the one man tasked with putting him on the gallows for murder, but also a man who uses Poe's own methods of detection. And when Poe finds Fields, he finds the detective dead, murdered by the Dutchman. And all the evidence points to Poe, and this time there is no escape. The police are closing in. The Dutchman waves at Poe from across the street of the murder room with a conspiratorial smile. The police break into the room. The police commissioner himself enters, Commissioner Rude van der Bruegel. Poe, he says, I arrest you for murder. And he smiles, the same conspiratorial smile. Poe realizes one of two things is happening. Either there is a vast Dutch conspiracy being organized against him, or he is going mad. But in either case, he is done for. And then, just like in Poe's The Devil in the Belfry, the clock strikes 13, throwing the Dutch policeman into amazed confusion, and a bright light forms in the doorway, and inexplicably, from its brilliant center, an unknown woman leaps into the room as if from nowhere. Who is she? Where does she come from? No one knows, but she is hot. And she proceeds to kick holy ass on Baltimore's finest in wordless martial arts mayhem and sexually arousing splendor. Poe himself punches Rude van der Bruegel into brutal unconsciousness. And when the room falls silent, Poe gazes at his hot rescuer and says, That was an implausible rescue I would not use in a story, but my thanks anyway. She smiles. The implausibility is only beginning, she says. And then Poe realizes that she possesses three arms, one of which is a gleaming silver cybernetic arm, because the woman is, in fact, three-fisted Emily Dickinson, fighting poet from the future, played perhaps by the lovely Emily Blunt, or the equally lovely Kate Beckinsale, or, dare I hope it, the very hot Joan Cusack? And yes, Joan Cusack is hot. Watch her break down the office in gross point blank. How hot is that? 
Then she seizes Poe's hand and they disappear in a flash of light, just as Carl the raccoon leaps in after them, following Poe, his faithful companion. But not before the commissioner regains consciousness, sees them, and disappears in an identical flash of light of his own. And so begins a roller coaster sci-fi epic as Poe, three-fisted Emily Dickinson, and Carl the Raccoon contend with evil Dutchmen to uncover a vast Dutch conspiracy to overthrow the United States of America and turn it into the New Netherlands, a conspiracy led by none other than President Martin Van Buren, played by Rutger Hauer, because nobody knows how to bring the blonde, blue-eyed, and sociopathic evil quite like Mr. Hauer. Can you see it? John Cusack's Poe and Rutger Hauer's President Van Buren battling it out mano a mano for the future of the United States in a climactic battle royale on the roof of the White House in a raging thunderstorm, hand-to-hand combat, American exceptionalism versus Dutch, whatever they call what they've got over there. Blood flying, teeth knocked out, maybe ears ripped off. Rutger Hauer has two huge extra cybernetic arms or not. I don't know. It depends on the budget. Lightning flashes, thunder crashes, the White House burns around them. There's this great, huge, loud music score playing, maybe by Danny Elfman if we can afford him, and if Tim Burton's not doing a movie right then. It looks bad for Poe. Van Buren has him down. Poe is done for again. The new Netherlands is rising in the east, a world fascist state of canals and windmills and liberal pot-smoking laws. Oh, the humanity. But wait, from out of nowhere, Carl the raccoon leaps on the President Van Buren at his moment of triumph and rips his face off. He screams in agony. Poe snatches up a piece of wood, a pole, something. He doesn't know what. He charges the president and runs him through the very heart with the pole like a harpoon. It is the flagpole from the roof of the White House. Van Buren, the evil Dutch traitor, falls on his face dead. And from the flagpole into the morning light unfurls the flag of the United States of America over the head of Edgar Allan Poe, American hero triumphant. Hold that shot. Then, crash cut forward in time 90 years to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Dutch-American, as he is defeated for the presidency in 1932 by Herbert Hoover. The United States does not enter World War II. The Nazis in Imperial Japan win the war. Tragedy and horror reign. Then the stinger after the credits. Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and William Burroughs operating out of a ramshackle laboratory enter a time machine barely a step ahead of a squad of German and Japanese soldiers. Pulse-pounding music hammers at the audience as we follow our literary heroes hurtling down the psychedelic time stream into the past. Their mission? Kill Edgar Allan Poe and save the world for freedom. Cue the sequel. Well, I'll admit it's kind of a different take on the Poe legend. But like I said, if you're going to go for the crazy, then I think you should really own the crazy. But meanwhile, back at the real movie. I left Ivan Reynolds after he had killed Poe for no very good reason. But his next move will, I am certain, thrill you all. He was going to, wait for it, go to France and annoy Jules Verne. Oh, my holy lord of the universe on a stick. What a move that would have been. And what next after that? Invent a time machine and cavort through L. Ron Hubbard's life? Follow Philip K. Dick in the shadows? Send photos of himself wearing nothing but body glitter to Stephanie Meyer? Oh, the fun he can have. 
except he gets shot, apparently, by Detective Fields, who apparently got to France ahead of the evil Mr. Reynolds, even though he couldn't possibly have started out on his trail any sooner than a week and possibly many weeks after Mr. Reynolds left. How? Who knows? But what's one more how-did-he-do-that moment in a movie stuffed to the frame's edge with them? Okay, okay, I'm being mean again. I must stop and say something nice. Have I mentioned that I like John Cusack? Let me check. Yes, I have. Carl the Raccoon? Yes, mentioned him. So where does that leave me? Alice Eve. Excellent. Alice Eve played Emily Hamilton with spunk and independence, much like the female lead in most action heroes' lives. And, as usual, dressed up Hollywood style, young, pretty, and blonde. I could find no mention of an Emily Hamilton when I looked through Poe's biography. No surprise there. Many of the events and characters in the movie didn't seem to have been real, including, sadly, Carl the Raccoon. What can I say about Ms. Eve but that I would rather have watched her trapped inside a coffin than Jamie Heineman of Mythbusters any day? And I say that with no trace of irony whatsoever. So did I like The Raven? Well, that's a tough one. I would feel bad if I just said flat out that I didn't like it, because a lot of talented people worked very hard making it. And also, I live in a suburb north of Chicago, and Mr. Cusack hails from a suburb or two over, so he knows his way around Chicago himself, and my guess is he could probably find me if he wanted to, and, I don't know, maybe kill me or something if I said I didn't like his movie. Well, maybe not kill me, because he really seems like too nice of a guy for that. But maybe hold a boombox over his head turned up real loud while playing his dramatic reading of the poem The Raven outside my bedroom window all night, until I gave in and agreed to like his movie. And did I mention that Mr. Cusack actually had a scene in the movie where he did a public reading of the poem The Raven? Which was also apparently some sort of 19th century writer's workshop at which audience members recited their poems for Poe's comments. One middle-aged woman read her poem, which wasn't good, and yet Poe treated it very nicely with some beautifully managed, extemporaneous bullshit that made the woman's crummy poem seem deeper, more musical, and more worthwhile than it had any right to seem. In fact, it was his own explanation that lent the poem its poetry. That scene, in my opinion, was Mr. Cusack's finest moment in the entire movie, the moment when he made Poe seem most human, and not an arm-flailing wannabe action hero who kept dropping his gun like Fox Mulder. Which he did. So, okay, I'm just going to focus on that scene and say I liked the movie, just to forestall the whole boombox thing, but mainly because I just can't, you know, say anything bad about Mr. Cusack. It is just like that damn movie 2012, which I cannot stop watching, even though I know watching it makes me a bad person. At its end, a new world dawns, and Mr. Cusack's character survives horror and mayhem to start a new life. So I will end this review in a similar way, with a new dawn, if you will, for a new movie. My top five list of movies I've written, but haven't been able to get anyone in Hollywood to make. Dedicated to John Cusack. Number 5. A sci-fi thriller monster movie about Tyrannosaurus Rex DNA crossbred with hummingbirds. The last sound you'll ever hear is actually quite pleasant. Hummingsaurus. Number 4. I Met My Mother in Bed. 
a hilarious and poignant comedy about a guy who wakes up in an alternate universe, naked in bed with his own very hot, very young mother, and then... Well, I won't go any further than saying I really like the idea of a guy waking up in bed with his really hot mother. But there's a really hilarious and poignant comedy stuck on the end of this idea, even if it seems kind of creepy to start with. Number three. My very highly stylized look at the cynical underbelly of the alcohol-fueled booze industry of the 60s, called Swizzle Men. Number two. Alien Hamburger Mind Rampage. A sci-fi thriller in which an alien being crash lands on Earth right into a giant hamburger meat processing factory, joining its vast and terrible intellect to the ground beef, beginning a reign of terror as a huge patty of invulnerable meat lurching across the landscape, absorbing humans, cows, squirrels, birds, whales, and whatever, until in the nick of time it is destroyed by a flesh-eating bacterial weapon of mass destruction designed by a vegan food terrorist. And number one, Somebody for Everybody. A fantasy romantic comedy about a guy and a girl, neither one too bright on their own, who find each other and discover that their IQs increase exponentially as they get closer to each other. They fall in love, but the government wants them apart, just the right distance apart, just close enough so that they're geniuses, but not close enough so that they can touch and make love and... What? What will happen if these two make love? Will they evolve into the ultimate intellectual power that will leave puny humanity behind as the backward monkeys they really are? Or will they achieve a spiritual transcendence that will lead humanity into a new age of peace and harmony? The answer is best left to when the movie comes out. So there you have it, my top five list of movies I've written but can't get anyone in Hollywood to pay attention to. But rest assured... A juicy part awaits Mr. Cusack in each one of these movies. Hint, hint. The End Ah, Poe. I have told the tale, too often perhaps, of sitting on my grandfather's knee and hearing the raven read, of hearing Annabel Lee et al. Poetry, so named because of Edgar Allan's writing within the form, yes? Perhaps my first reading when words on the page became sound in my ears and then issued from my mouth were Poe's words, so of course I have affection for him and would like to think of him as a man of action, not simply a neurasthenic needer of substances wondrous and arcane? Ah, no. Ah, well. The Raven. A film I must one day see, I suppose. But, you know, I always think, having heard one of Marty's non-reviews, I think I'd like to see that film, rather than the one that's in the can. Ah, well. On October 9th, I shall see... The original. So, thank you, Martin Munt. Marty, by the way, is the author of one novel, Reanimated Americans, now available, and has published two short story collections, The Dark Underbelly of Hymns and The Crawling Abattoir. He founded the webzine Feral Fiction in 2004. His play, The Jackie Sex Knife Show, was produced by the Crooked Twilight Theater Company in Chicago in 2003. 
Seven of his short stories have received honorable mention in Ellen Datlow's The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror Anthologies. He won the Flash Fiction Contest at the World Horror Conventions in 2005 and 2006 with stories that cannot be read in front of children, and thank God he didn't show up in 2007, and let me win that year. He is found in cyberspace at www.martin-munt.blogspot.com. Just click on it below. And I would be willing to bet Marty is writing another story as I speak into this machine. Next, a bit of business. I hope you've become aware of and have visited the other neighborhoods in the District of Wonders, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp, and not to forget the Starship Sofa, on behalf of which I hope in a few hours to be picking up its second Hugo Award. Well, we'll not talk of that. But please, stop by the District Hoods and listen. I think you'll find something to enjoy. Also, send us your stories, send us your money, send us your love in the form of reviews on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, and however you do it, spread the word about us. And bait your breath for Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, due out on Halloween. We can be reached at talestoterrify at gmail.com. That's enough business for the evening. We have now the eighth vertebra in our ongoing series, A Tour of the Abattoir. Critical comment on the weird, the bloody, the wondrously terrifying from author, editor, and all-round interesting fellow Mike Allen. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and I have a pair of book reviews to share with you. Two short novels, one from a newcomer and one from a new master. Ennis Drake's 28 Teeth of Rage, what an excellent title, and Laird Barron's The Croning. But before we begin this massacre of words, allow me to attend to some news both wonderful and gruesome. First, the wonderful news. When you last heard from me, I was in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign to help revive the anthology series that I edit, Clockwork Phoenix. If the funding went like I hoped it would, I'd be able to publish as well as edit the next volume in the series and offer professional pay rates to the writers. Well... It went better than I could ever have hoped it would. We cleared 10,000 in pledges, which means that on top of guaranteeing that Clockwork Phoenix 4 will come out, we'll be launching a new electronic magazine next year for poetry and fiction. I want to thank everybody who supported me by donating, by signal boosting, by giving me advice, however you did it. I'm really humbled by the support this community showed for me and for Anita and for these books we make. And I'd like to think we'll have a little bit to give back to horror fans when it's all over with. I mean, the first three volumes all contained horror. 
Laird Barron's story, Occultation, the title story of his Shirley Jackson award-winning collection, appeared in Clockwork Phoenix 1. Gemma Files' knockout novelette, Each Thing I Show You, is a piece of my death, co-written with her husband, Stephen J. Barringer, and nominated for several awards, appeared in Volume 2. And Gemma came back in Book 3 with the Ranu award-winning Hell Friend, and Volume 3 also had horror stories by C.S.E. Cooney, who I know is Claire, and Georgina Bruce, Braiding the Ghosts, and Crow Voodoo. These got a lot of notice, too. So Clockwork Phoenix 4 opens to submissions from October 1st to December 14th. Check clockworkphoenix.com for details. And we'll see what horrors spill through the window and end up on display in my pretty little jars. Maybe it will be something of yours. Now, more gruesome news. As I write this script, the dust is maybe starting to settle after the latest Weird Tales horror. Though it's the wrong kind of horror, I'm afraid. More the surprise train wreck on the way home from work sort of horror than the artistically crafted kind. If you've missed the brouhaha, though I don't know how you could have, it involved a novel self-published by author and actress Victoria Foyt called Save the Pearls, Revealing Eden. The book stirred some anger on its own because of its plot that imagines a white minority oppressed by a black majority who are portrayed using racist stereotypes, and also because the book trailer involved a blonde woman performing in blackface. Probably Save the Pearls would be mostly forgotten by now if New Weird Tales editor Marvin Kaye had not, out of the blue, championed the novel, insisted all its critics were wrong, and declared that he would showcase the first chapter in the next issue of Weird Tales. That first chapter, by the way, is available free to read online. The very predictable storm of outrage that followed this announcement resulted in the magazine's publisher stepping in within a matter of a few hours and declaring Weird Tales would not be publishing an excerpt from Save the Pearls after all. Further compounding the situation, Kay was already on a probation of sorts. When his company purchased Weird Tales last year from Wildside Press, then-editor Anne Vandermeer, who had led Weird Tales to its first Hugo Award, was fired, much to the distress of fans who enjoyed the magazine's more literary direction under her tenure. A peace agreement had been worked out in which Anne would stay on as a contributing editor, but she resigned when Marvin made his announcement. And furthermore, her husband Jeff Vandermeer revealed that Marvin and his team had been warned a couple months ahead of time that endorsing Foyt's novel was a terrible idea. Blog reports say that even though Marvin has agreed not to publish Save the Pearls, he continues to defend the book in email correspondence with angry subscribers. I had a lot of fondness for the older incarnation of Weird Tales, which, though plagued by schedule problems, was the go-to source for new works by one of my favorite writers, Thomas Ligotti. I do not, I confess, miss the tendency of former editor Daryl Schweitzer to publish his own stories and poems in every issue, while other writers, including me, sometimes had to wait years for their work to appear. Sorry, Daryl, if you're listening, but it's true. However, I enjoyed the rejuvenation of content and design that Anne and art director Steven Seagal brought about, and two very short stories of mine appeared in the zine during her Hugo-winning reign, something I'm very proud of. Now, I've worked with Marvin Kaye before, too, and was certainly willing to give him a shot, 
but it's a mystery to me how he could ever have thought backing Foyt's book was a good move, for the future of Weird Tales or for his own career. I hope he and the publishers of the new incarnation of Weird Tales ultimately come away from this wiser. Now then, let's get to the kind of horror that you're really here for. It's a tradition when one is reviewing that one acknowledges connections to the author if one has them. Well, I have connections to a lot of authors, and Mr. Drake and Mr. Barron are no exceptions. Ennis, I don't know very well, but he and I have crossed paths from time to time. I knew him first through the poetry scene, and so it was a little bit of a surprise to me to find he has a novel out. Interestingly enough, almost as soon as I learned this, I saw Laird Barron post on his Facebook page encouraging everyone to read 28 Teeth of Rage. That really got me interested. I wound up reading it on Kindle for PC. Now, I have bad news for you folks who insist nothing will ever replace a book in hand. The Kindle reading experience is actually pretty darn pleasant. However, I read Laird's The Croning in the form of a good old-fashioned hardcover. I first encountered Laird through a cold reading of his amazing novella, The Imago Sequence, when it first appeared in fantasy and science fiction. I had not at the time heard of him, and that story blew me away. It caused me to seek out other works of his, like Bulldozer, Proboscis, and Hallucigenia. Then I met him at ReaderCon in Boston, got to tell him how kick-ass I thought his stories were, and we became friends, even as I continued to be blown away by stories like Procession of the Black Sloth, Strapado, and 666. Gotta love that title. As I've mentioned, I got to edit one of his stories for Clockwork Phoenix, and he's written the introduction to my own upcoming collection of stories, The Button Bin and Other Horrors. So there. Full disclosure. Needless to say, I've been really excited about what he might pull off in novel form. A lot of people will think The Croning is his first novel, but he corrected me at ReaderCon. There's a short novel from a small press titled The Light is the Darkness that I do not yet have a copy of. That's actually his first. Look to hear from me about that down the road. So how are these books? I definitely recommend them both, but not without some caveats. The editor in me cannot help but feel that each one could have benefited from a bit more polishing. Drake's debut starts out very strong, but by the end it's kind of spinning its gory wheels, while Laird's book starts out awkward and meandering, but ends with a plunge into a relentless nightmare and a final flourish that really goes for the throat. So you have one that begins strong and one that ends strong. Now let me break this down. I'm going to start with 28 Teeth of Rage. This book is fast-paced and has a great setup. You could argue that what Drake's done is taken the basic premise that drives Stephen King's classic story, The Mangler, and built a compelling character study around it. We're introduced to Gulf War veteran and police detective Riley, a likable cynical cop who suffered psychologically as a black man in a white man's world and who's now physically suffering from terminal cancer. And he's a bit bewildered by the nightmares he's having, courtesy of the murder case he's been trying to solve, in which he relives the experiences of a white American soldier terrorized by a bloodthirsty cannibal cult in the days before the Civil War. The murder suspect in Riley's case is also a soldier, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, whose legs were blown off by an IED. We get to know Strom Weldon, broken, suicidal, and struggling to adjust to his new life, through a tape recording Riley plays, and Strom's wife Jody through a diary she leaves behind. 
It's clear Strom and Jody love each other, but also that Jody has good reason to fear her husband, who's come home changed from the war. This already volatile mix becomes even more worrisome when Jody purchases a chop saw to get her husband engaged in life and home repairs again. The problem is it's immediately apparent we're in Stephen King turf. Something is wrong with the saw, the way something was wrong with the car in Christine. And whatever it is, it's connected to Detective Riley's nightmares. I bet you're hooked. I certainly was. But I have to say, the second half, while very entertaining, doesn't quite deliver on the promise of the first. For me, there were two reasons, though they're linked by a common thread, in that I think Drake relies too much on tricks taken from Stephen King's toolbox. First, just for some background, I'm not a police officer or a lawyer myself, but as a journalist, I covered crime and court cases for years, and I can tell you that the further you get in 28 Teeth of Rage, the less you know about how police investigations actually work, the more you'll enjoy the novel. It becomes like any number of television shows and movies that just fudge the details. What's perhaps most egregious is how Drake treats Strom's tape recording. Stephen King does this thing where a motif or an inner thought or the voice of a possessing demon or ghost suddenly interjects italics into a character's point of view. Drake does this too, only he does it when the narration is supposed to be a transcription of a character speaking into a tape recorder. As there's no explanation given by the character who is listening about how that sounds, it begins to feel more and more like author intrusion, and it kind of breaks the spell. The story moves fast enough that it's not a huge hindrance. However, I'm perhaps a little spoiled. Uh, earlier, I mentioned Gemma and Stevens' Each Thing I Show You is a Piece of My Death. That's a story that unfolds completely through recreations of court documents, interview transcripts, autopsy files, copies of emails, and it's airtight in its presentation, which makes the story a thousand times creepier. 28 Teeth could have benefited from being airtight in that same way, but that's not the biggest problem. Stephen King famously wrote, I'll try to terrify you first, and if that doesn't work, I'll horrify you, and if I can't make it there, I'll try to gross you out. This philosophy is why some of the set pieces in King's stories end up being silly rather than frightening, and I'm afraid Drake succumbs to this in the story's final act. This is in part because he writes himself into a little bit of a corner by putting all the gore on stage as these storylines converge and adding in some very over-the-top hallucinatory imagery, extreme enough that I think we get into bizarro territory. The problem with showing everything as... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 1980s horror flicks demonstrated is that you can turn suspense into comedy. Now, Clive Barker in the 1980s was extremely deft at melding in the hilarious gross-out while still delivering an unnerving story, but King sometimes falls flat in this regard because he doesn't leave room to accommodate for the comic element. His novel It didn't work for me as a fright fest because all I had to do was stop and think, now what would that actually look like? And, of course, the action would reveal itself as ridiculous. Uh, 28 Teeth of Rage has some of these same problems. However, if what you're looking for is phantasmagorical gore by the wagon load, this is your book. I will say that 28 Teeth of Rage does make me very interested in seeing what Drake is going to do next as he develops his own tools and relies less on King's tricks. To be fair... As a writer, I cop from King 2. I think we all do. We can't all be Laird Baron, who practically stepped out of the gate with a voice all his own. The croning is classic Baron, which is both its greatest strength and its Achilles heel. I guess the best way to explain what I mean by that is to just come out and say it. What I had hoped for was a novel that took things to the level of tension and mind-blowing imagery achieved in some of those amazing novellas like The Imago Sequence and Procession of the Black Sloth, and then use the next 50,000 words or so to take it to the next level. The Croning is more like another of Laird's novellas. It has about the same amount of plot and incident, stretched out to the length of a short novel by filling in extensive details about the histories of the major characters and their relationships. However, there is some justification for this, as the marriage of main character Donald Miller and his witchy wife Michelle Mock provides the fulcrum everything else turns on. But we begin, of all things, with a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, written in pulp noir prose. Even though the theme is relevant to the overall story arc, I have to say I found this opening awkward and unconvincing, and later, when there's a direct connection revealed between this segment and the modern-day plot, I still felt the same way. I wish perhaps Laird had found a different way to do this, maybe have someone tell this part of the story rather than present it straight-faced. Still, spilt milk. Past that... We quickly get into some eerie events in Mexico that deliver the creepy goods, with all Baron's trademarks in place. The man in unfamiliar territory who finds himself in over his head, the company of dangerous men with sinister agendas, and a trip underground that leads to cosmic horror. The man these events happen to, Don Miller, can't remember afterward exactly what did happen, 
And he just sort of lets it slide that it was his quest to find his mysteriously missing wife that got him in this fix, even though she later acts like there was nothing amiss at all on her side of things. We rejoin Don and Michelle as they're both senior citizens enjoying the fruits of a long marriage, entertaining their grown children who've come to visit them in the unnerving old house in Washington State that Michelle inherited from her even creepier aunts. Michelle shows some signs of not being exactly what she seems, and the cellar door that keeps opening on its own and the strange noises once the house is dark don't exactly bode well, though loving husband Don's curious amnesia makes it so that no matter how hard he tries, he can't quite connect the dots. If you know your Laird Barron stories, then you know cosmic horror is at the heart of this, in fact, being too familiar with Laird's stories might be a little bit of a disadvantage during the earlier parts of the novel, as even some of the most spine-tingling moments feel like they were lifted out of his short stories. That combined with a first half that seems plotless, as we get all sorts of flashbacks and reflections on the Miller and Mock family histories, but little forward motion, makes the croning feel rather directionless. However folks, patience pays off. Nobody does paranoia better than Baron. That sense that there's some link between the whisper you heard in the closet in the middle of the night and the scary, intimidating thug who stared at you the entire time you were out at dinner with your friends, and you know the noose is pulling tighter, though you don't understand how or why. Once all the pieces are finally maneuvered into place, the plot starts to roll and the revelations begin. Well, I'm delighted to report that there is some wickedly nerve-wracking, nightmare-inducing stuff in this book. I don't really want to spoil any of it, though I do want to say the final scene is, I believe, the most chilling Laird has written to date. Something that Laird also does very well is hide the full extent of the horrors at work, showing you just enough that your imagination completely runs wild trying to contemplate the parts of the beast that you couldn't see. Though there are some moments that fall prey to the same problem I described with the ending of Ennis Drake's book, in The Croning, these attempts to explain the indescribable, which by definition must fall short, are overwhelmed by the implications of events left mostly off-stage. For those of you looking to craft your own open-source nightmares, it's a lesson to take to heart. And I think I might need a lesson in brevity. That's certainly enough for me for now. My movie-reviewing partner, Shallon Hurlbert, will be back with us next time when we're going to talk about two movies that share common themes, an inside look at Radio News and The Walking Dead. That's dead air and Pontypool. Oh, the fun we'll have. Until then, stay scared. Thanks, Mike. Oh, by the way, congratulations on gathering the support to expand the Empire, and best wishes for it. Fiction. This is why you stopped by tonight, isn't it? I'm sure. In honor of tonight's sub-host, the Cat Mahler, we have a lovely little pet tale from Anna Taborska. If you remember Miss Taborska's tale, Halloween Lights, was featured way back 
in Episode 6 of Tales to Terrify. Anna is a London-born lady. That's London, England, of course. She's an award-winning filmmaker and writer of horror tales, screenplays, poetry. Her stories have appeared in anthologies such as The Black Books of Horror in the UK and Best New Writing 2011, Best New Werewolf Tales, Volume 1, and The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 4 in the U.S., Anna's short story, Bagpuss, was an Eric Hoffer Award honoree. She recently finished work on a collection of horror novelettes entitled Bloody Britain. Uh, one thing. Let me caution you. Tonight's story contains some rather clearly described moments of torment. So, if you are sensitive to that sort of thing, well, you know what to do. If you are still here, and Mahler is, here is Schrodinger's Human by Anna Taborska. The cat had the uncanny ability of seeming to be in two places at once, and it appeared logical to the man that he should name it Schrodinger. The cat eventually approved the name, purring as the man tried it out. Well, Schrodinger... I expect you must want some dinner today, the man asked, backing away from the plate of cat food to allow the animal a chance to feed. But the cat stayed where it was, high up on the kitchen cupboard, and refused to give the cat food the time of day, just as it had refused milk and water, and even ham. The man had first come across the cat on his return from work the previous day. It was thin and dirty, a mud-smeared black, with cold green eyes and a tattered left ear. The pitiful-looking thing was stretched out on his doorstep and refused to budge, even as the man approached. Instead, it fixed him with an expectant stare and weaved its tail from side to side. The man studied the cat, and a long-forgotten joy stirred within him. Ever since he was a child, the man had enjoyed torturing animals. His grandfather had bought him a butterfly net, and the boy quickly worked out that if you rubbed too much of a colourful dust off a butterfly's wings, it had trouble flying. And things got even more interesting if you pulled off its wings altogether and put it on an anthill. You could watch the black specks of ants swarm all over the wounded intruder, watch the butterfly that was no longer a butterfly, but a fascinating broken thing, try to lift itself out of the writhing mass of small stinging creatures, helplessly flailing its long, thin legs, its proboscis furling and unfurling in some strange insect rhythm of pain. Butterflies continued to fascinate for a long time, but eventually the allure of real animals, ones which screamed and bled, took over from those that merely twitched pathetically. After much begging and family debate, he was finally given an air rifle for his birthday. But sadly, this was confiscated when he moved up from shooting crows and squirrels to shooting the neighbour's pets. If necessity is the mother of invention, then a twisted imagination is its father, aunt and uncle. The boy came to understand that the air rifle which he had so mourned wasn't even a drop in the endless ocean of possibilities when it came to inflicting suffering on anything small and fluffy that had a heartbeat. 
and the smaller and fluffier it was, the easier it could be lured with a warm tone of voice, a friendly smile, a tickle behind the ear, and, if all else failed, a piece of ham. The boy tried a variety of techniques on his victims. Dismemberment, disembowelment, decapitation, throwing off the roof or out of a window, the breaking of individual bones with a blunt instrument, bloodletting, crucifixion, and even electrocution. He was particularly good at this, as he had an excellent science teacher at school and displayed a definite propensity for the subject. But his favourite was luring a cat with the promise of food or affection, trapping it in a cage and carrying it to his parents' roof, where he would douse its tail with petrol and set it alight before pushing it headfirst down the drain pipe. The trapped animal, its tail ablaze, would scream all the way down the drain pipe until it got trapped in a bend where it would burn to charred bones, then fall out to the bottom. This method only worked on small cats and kittens, but could also be applied to some breeds of puppy. The boy's attempts to involve the little girl next door in his pastime resulted in his being sent to a boarding school run by monks, where his sadistic horizons expanded to the use of canes, whips and rulers. The boy left school with top results in science and went on to university, where his interest in animals waned somewhat as his physics studies and unreciprocated fascination with girls led him to attain a first-class degree, despite almost being sent down for peeping through a female student's bedroom window. He stayed on in academia, eventually becoming a lecturer at a good university, where he could continue to indulge in physics and his unreciprocated fascination with girls. And now here he was, trying to get home after a tiring day of lectures, and this scruffy, ugly cat was lying on his doorstep as if daring him to gouge out its eyes and cut off its paws. Old passions awoke within the man, but he was too tired to act on them. He picked up a piece of brick that was lying in the roadside and aimed it between the cat's eyes. Just then, a piercing pain shot through the man's temple. He dropped the brick and put his hands up to his head. As quickly as it had come, the pain was gone. But the man was left feeling bewildered and a little dizzy. As he rubbed his eyes to clear his head, he heard a voice close by his ear. Let me in, it said. The man span round, but there was nobody nearby. Only the cat sprawled on his doorstep, eyeing him like a scientist eyes a mildly interesting specimen before a dissection. Let me in, the voice continued. And I'll show you things you've never seen. I'll take you to places you can't begin to imagine. The man closed his eyes for a moment. When he opened them, the voice was gone, and he felt his normal self again. He looked at his front door. The cat was no longer reclining, but sat alertly, a couple of feet away from the door, as if waiting for the man to open it. What the hell, thought the man. If the cat wanted to come in, then let it. He was tired now, but he would amuse himself with the animal later. He opened the door and stood back to let the cat in. 
It eyed him suspiciously for a moment, then darted past, leaping over the threshold and heading straight for the kitchen. The man followed it, locking the door behind him. He put his briefcase down in the hall and went to see what the cat was doing. The kitchen was bathed in darkness, and before the man switched on the light, he caught sight of the cat's eyes glowing in the shadows by the sink. But as the light from the overhead lamp illuminated the room, the man saw that the cat was not by the sink. Surprised, he looked around and spotted the creature sitting high on a kitchen cupboard, peering down at him with some curiosity and possibly a hint of malevolence. Well, I'll be damned, he told the cat. The rough-and-tumble world of quantum physics would have a field day with you. The man laughed at his own wit and went to the fridge to get some milk. If he was to get any use out of the cat, he'd have to start by getting it down from the kitchen cupboard. But no end of coaxing would bring the cat down from its vantage point. Not even a slice of premium ham. The man contemplated standing on a chair and dislodging the cat or throwing something at it, but he really couldn't be bothered. Besides, it would be much more fun to get the cat to trust him and then see the surprise on its furry little face when he took his penknife to it. The man made his own dinner, ate it, and went through to the sitting room to mark first-year physics assignments, leaving a plate of ham out to see if the cat would come down in his absence. That night, the man dreamt that he was walking through an unfamiliar landscape of red and black. The landscape was constantly shifting and changing. One moment he was walking along a mountain path, looking down into a valley of houses and fields. Next, he was in a labyrinth of tunnels, the walls made of human bones and skulls arranged in intricate patterns, one on top of the other. Somewhere ahead of the man, a fire burned, and light from it bounced around the bone walls, bathing him in a warm glow and sending shadows flitting around the man. Beside him walked Schrodinger the cat, watching him with a modicum of curiosity, as if all this was familiar to the animal, and it was merely interested in what the man made of it all. Interested, but not that interested. As the man approached the source of the flames, he became aware of the crackling sound they made. The crackling became a scratching, and the scratching grew louder until the man awoke. The scratching continued, and the man realised that it was coming from his wardrobe. The damned cat had somehow gotten into it, and was probably ruining his suits. He reached over to switch on his bedside lamp, and jumped as his fingers touched fur. The man sat upright, and the cat leapt off the bedside table on which it had been sitting. God damn you, Schrodinger! The man switched on the lamp, and glared at the creature now sitting in the doorway. He swung his legs out of bed, but the cat had already gone. The man closed his bedroom door, and went back to sleep. In the morning, the cat was back on the kitchen cupboard, and the ham was untouched on the plate where the man had left it the night before. The creature obviously hadn't eaten for a while, and it had to be hungry. Either it was sick, or it had been trained not to eat anything other than cat food. The man determined to buy some whiskers on his way home from work. But the cat wouldn't eat whiskers, or Sheba, or Felix. It wouldn't drink milk, or water, and it wouldn't eat cat biscuits. In fact, it was a miracle that it was still alive. 
but was growing more emaciated by the day, and its protruding ribs only served to make it look scruffier and uglier. For a moment, the man astonished himself by contemplating taking it to a vet, but quickly shrugged off such an insane idea and decided to kill it. He placed a kitchen chair next to the cupboard on which Schrodinger was perched and went to get the meat cleaver. Then the doorbell rang. The man put the cleaver down and went to answer the door. It was the teenage girl from the house next door. I'm sorry to bother you, she said, but I'm locked out of the house. I forgot to take my keys this morning and my mum isn't back till seven. A couple of workmen followed me home from the high street and I don't want to wait outside. Can I hang out at yours until my mum gets back? The man studied the girl's short skirt and the way her blonde hair was pulled back in a ponytail, revealing the curve where her neck met her shoulder. Sure, he told the girl, and stood aside to let her in. He cast a quick glance around the street. Sure enough, he saw two workmen loitering across the road, but they quickly turned on their heels and disappeared. There was no one else around. Would you like a cup of tea? the man asked, leading the way to the kitchen. No, thanks. Have you got any coke? Yes. The man got a coke from the fridge and handed it to the girl. Would you like a glass? No, thanks. The man indicated for the girl to take a seat. That was when they both saw Schrodinger. It was standing on the kitchen table, tail twitching, staring at the girl. Oh, what a cute kitty, cried the girl and moved towards the animal. Schrodinger, what the hell are you doing? The tone in the man's voice stopped the girl in her tracks. The man moved forward, ready to swipe the cat off the table, but as he did so, the sharp pain in his head came back, then went, and a voice near his ear said, Kill her. What? exclaimed the man. What? asked the girl, staring at the man uncomprehendingly. Nothing, honey, uh, nothing. But the voice came again, more persistent this time. Kill her now. <laughs> the man felt confused. He looked at the girl. Her tanned arms and legs looked so inviting. A small archery in her neck was throbbing. The man found himself wondering how far the blood from that archery would spurt and whether it would reach the ceiling or just spatter the walls. He wondered whether the look of surprise in her eyes would be like that of the kittens and puppies he had dispatched to kitten and puppy heaven as a boy. He suspected that it would be better, much better, than anything he had experienced before. His cock was throbbing, and he realised that the cat was staring at him, green eyes blazing, its customary disdain replaced by a feral excitement. The artery in the girl's neck was still throbbing. Her lips were cherry red and a look of alarm was creeping over her face. She raised her hand to cover her mouth and as she did so, her top rode up a little and the man could see the silver ring in her pierced belly button. As time seemed to stop and stretch around the man, he noticed that the blue of the small gemstone on the ring matched the colour of the girl's eyes. 
the artery in the girl's neck was throbbing, the man's cock was throbbing, and now a blood vessel in his head started to throb. The light in the kitchen seemed to throb, and the whole world was throbbing, a glorious red throbbing, pulsating, pounding. Then the meat cleaver was in the man's hand, and the look of surprise in the girl's eyes was better than the puppies and the kittens. It was better than anything the man had experienced before, and the girl's blood was on the walls, and on the ceiling, and on the floor. When the throbbing subsided, the man was sitting on the floor, his hands and clothes covered in blood. He felt calm, and he felt good. The cat was standing beside him, face and whiskers stained red, frenziedly lapping up the girl's blood from the floor. The man stared at the animal in disbelief, but made no move to stop it. Despite the blood on its snout, the cat seemed less dirty than before. Its fur seemed sleeker. It seemed somehow fatter and healthier. Even its tattered ear seemed to have grown back together. God damn you, Schrodinger, the man said quietly, but the cat didn't even acknowledge his presence. It had licked a vast amount of blood off the floor and was now licking the girl's fingers. The man crawled around the girl's body to the hand that wasn't being worked on by the cat. He lifted the hand and sucked the blood from the index finger. It had a sickly taste, sweet and metallic. The man sucked on the girl's thumb and found that the taste was no longer sickly. It was, in fact, rather good. A feeling of contented tiredness overcame the man, and he dozed off right there on the kitchen floor next to the girl's lacerated body. When he woke up, it was dark, and Schrodinger was nowhere to be seen. The man chopped up the girl's body with the meat lever, removing clothes, hair, bones, and anything else that was inedible. This he would take to the municipal dump on his way to work tomorrow along with the girl's faceless head. Everything else he washed and divided between his fridge and the freezer. He cleaned the walls as best he could, then dragged the kitchen table across and made an attempt to clean the ceiling. He would have to buy a large tin of paint and paint over the stains that wouldn't wash off. That night, the man dreamt that he was standing over a precipice, looking down into a vast pit. The pit was filled with fire, the man noticed movement in the flames and realised that the pit was full of people, thousands of people burning. He found that if he concentrated, he could hone in on individuals. He could clearly see the expressions of torment on their faces, the pain in their eyes. Their bodies were writhing and their limbs flailing about helplessly. The man remembered the wingless butterflies flailing around on the anthill in his parents' garden and smiled. He looked down and saw Schrodinger gazing up at him, reflections of the flames dancing in the animal's eyes. Next morning, the man awoke to purring by the side of his bed, but wasn't all that surprised to find that Schrodinger was not by his bed at all, but was waiting 
expectantly in the kitchen, sitting by the spot where the man had previously left its unwanted plate of cat food. Oh, so now you want to eat? The man knew what the cat wanted, but decided to tease it and put out a bowl of milk. But the joke was on him, as Schrodinger gave him such a look of malevolent contempt that the man's blood seemed to freeze in his veins, and a nasty shiver went down his spine. Sorry, he said, and poured the milk down the sink. He got out a mincing machine and took some of the girl's flesh out of the fridge. He pushed it into the mincer and watched the pink worms come out the bottom. A sharp meow distracted him, and he glanced down to see Schrodinger dancing around on its hind paws, teeth bared. He put the mince on a clean plate, and hardly had time to place the plate on the floor before Schrodinger was upon it, wolfing down the meat like it hadn't eaten in days, which, after all, it hadn't. The man couldn't help thinking that if he hadn't withdrawn his hand in time, the animal might have devoured that, too. As he watched the cat feed, the man noticed how healthy it was looking. He thought he might have imagined it last night, in all the excitement, but in the cold light of day, he could see that the cat's fur was a sleek, clean, shiny black. Its protruding ribs had disappeared, concealed by a respectable plumpness, and its left ear looked like it had never encountered the Mike Tyson of the feline world. The man cut a few thin slices of meat and treated himself to a full English breakfast. Over the next couple of weeks, the cat and the man ate what was left of the teenager. The police came round and asked questions, but only the two workmen had seen the girl enter the man's house, and the police knew nothing of their existence. Officer Jones commented on the man's cute cat, and Schrodinger purred obligingly, and that was that. Or would have been, except that the man couldn't stop thinking about the girl. Sometimes he worried about getting found out, but mostly he reminisced about the unbearably sweet sensation of plunging the meat cleaver into her soft flesh. His craving for more flesh and more blood wouldn't let him rest or concentrate on his work. Despite their shared diet, as the cat got fatter, the man lost weight, grew pale and haggard. When he slept, he dreamt of the burning pit and the bodies in it writhing in perpetual torment. But mostly he just tossed and turned in bed, listened to Schrodinger scratching in the wardrobe and watched its eyes glow by the side of his bed. About the time that the girl meat ran out, the man's cravings reached an unbearable pitch. He was horny and hungry and confused all at the same time. He was distracted in his tutorials, and it was just a matter of time before one of the students complained. Schrodinger was refusing to eat anything that wasn't human, and its body was atrophying. Its left ear was hanging in tatters by the sight of its head, and its teeth started falling out, so that its tongue protruded, giving it a rather unsavoury and slightly demented expression. It eyed the man with barely disguised contempt, and the man found himself 
feeling increasingly uncomfortable around it. The student was only in her first term, but she was already behind in her work. She had been good at physics in school, but university was different. The professor was bombarding them with new information every day, and they were expected to come up with their own ideas and solutions to problems. When the professor asked to see her, she was terrified that she was in trouble. She was relieved when he spoke kindly to her and offered to spend some time with her, going over problems that they had tackled in class to help her catch up with the others. The professor explained that he had a variety of textbooks at home and it would be easier if she dropped by his house where they would have all the books at hand. I realise that young ladies sometimes feel uncomfortable being alone with a man, he told her, and you are very welcome to bring a friend with you as long as your friend won't mind keeping my cat company while we're studying. You have a cat, the girl smiled. His name's Schrodinger. He's very friendly, and he's especially fond of young ladies. The girl smiled again and lowered her eyes. Do you have a friend you'd like to bring? The man knew full well that the girl had no friends. Shy and from a state school, unlike the privileged majority of the students, he often saw her sitting alone in the lecture hall and leaving alone when the lectures were over. Ah, oh, that's okay, the girl replied. I don't feel uncomfortable. That's just fine. My cat would love to meet you. He's been feeling a little under the weather lately. The plan seemed foolproof, but when the student arrived at his house, the man found himself having second thoughts. This was not something he'd envisioned. He'd wanted another girl desperately for weeks, but when he saw her standing on his doorstep in her knee-high socks and pink sweater, physics notes in a file under her arm, his palms suddenly felt clammy and a nerve under his eye started to twitch. She was his student after all, and maybe that meant he was crossing some kind of line, a line between fair game and, well, not. Come in, he told the girl seriously considering actually giving her a physics lesson. But as soon as he shut the door behind her and ushered her into the kitchen, Schrodinger was there in front of them, meowing and twitching its tail. Oh, exclaimed the girl. He doesn't look too well. He hasn't been eating properly, the man explained. In fact, he's been feeling rather sorry for himself, but I'm sure he'll cheer up now that you're here. The girl stooped down to stroke the cat, but something in its unappetizing appearance and intent stare put her off. She straightened up and smiled at the professor, who offered her a cup of tea and put the kettle on. The cat meowed loudly, and the man tried to swipe at it behind the girl's back, but the pain in his head was back. The man winced and clapped his hands to his temples. Are you okay, professor? There was concern in the girl's brown eyes, but the pain in his head was gone, and the dizzying feeling was back, and the voice was telling him to kill. Professor, are you feeling all right? But the kettle was in his hand, and before he knew it, he was pouring boiling water over the girl's face, and she was too shocked to make a sound as her face started to blister. And then he was bashing the girl over the head with the kettle, bashing her face and bashing her chest and bashing the base of her skull. The girl slid to the floor, but still he kept hitting her. He could feel his skin 
burning as some of the boiling liquid splashed on his hands, but still he kept smashing the girl with the kettle until her head was a bloody pulp and her legs ceased twitching. Then he stopped. He put the kettle down and went to the sink, soaking his hands under the cold water tap until he was fairly confident that they wouldn't blister. He glanced occasionally over his shoulder at the cat, which was greedily lapping up the puddle of blood beneath the dead girl's head. The cleaning and carving took a long time, and the man went to bed exhausted. He fell asleep quickly and dreamt that he was falling into the burning pit. He fell slowly and had ample opportunity to watch and feel the flames getting closer. The rising heat overtook him on his way down, and by the time he reached the bottom of the pit, his flesh was already blistering and smoking. His skin caught fire and was burnt away, and as the flames reached the fat beneath, the man went up like a torch. He tried to scream, but his throat was burning on the inside. He looked up and saw Schrodinger looking down at him from the edge of the pit. The cat's expression was one of mild amusement. The following day, the man determined to kill Schrodinger. He minced some meat, laid it out on a clean plate, and put it down in front of the waiting cat. While the creature was preoccupied, the man opened the drawer and took hold of the meat cleaver. The pain hit his head like a spear, and he dropped the cleaver back in the drawer. He looked over at Schrodinger, but the cat didn't even interrupt its meal long enough to cast him an evil glance. It was a while before anyone reported the student missing. The police came to the campus and interviewed everyone who knew her. The interviews didn't last long, as even those students who recognised her picture weren't able to provide any information about the girl. But Officer Jones recognised the physics professor as the next-door neighbour he had interviewed in his previous unsolved missing girl case and decided to pay him a home visit, complete with warrant. Officer Jones arrived at the house with two other policemen. If the man was shocked to see three police officers on his doorstep, he didn't show it. He invited them in politely and stood back as they ransacked his home. Officer Jones spotted a pair of green eyes in the shadows under the coffee table in the sitting room and remembered the man's cat. He had a soft spot for cats and bent down to the animal, but saw to his surprise that the space under the coffee table was empty. As he straightened up, he noticed the cat sitting on an armchair at the far side of the room, watching him. Before he had a chance to approach the animal, one of the other officers summoned him from the bedroom. He hurried over to his colleague. Officer Trevaney was standing by the open drawer of the man's bedside cabinet, holding a silver belly button ring with a small blue gemstone in his latex-gloved hand. Officer Jones recognised it immediately from a photograph given to him by the parents of the missing girl from the house next door. He moved rapidly out into the hallway, where Officer Green was waiting with the man. Sir, we need you to come with us to the station. Answer some questions, Officer Jones told the man. For the briefest moment, the man looked shaken, but regained his composure almost instantly. Of course, he said. Anything I can do to help, 
I'll just grab my coat. The man went over to the coat stand and reached for his coat, but just then he felt the familiar stabbing pain in his head. It came and went, leaving him confused as to how it was that he'd lifted the heavy coat stand and why it was that he'd brought the full weight of it down on Officer Green, brought the large wooden object down again and again on the policeman until he felt a stinging pain rip through his shoulder and the whole world went red, then black. Officer Jones put his gun away and radioed for an ambulance. He moved swiftly over to the man and checked his pulse. The bullet had passed straight through his heart and the man was dead within seconds. It was a bad situation, but the man would have killed Officer Green if he hadn't already done so. Officer Jones knelt beside Officer Trevaney, who was tending to their badly wounded colleague. He's alive, said Officer Trevaney, but he needs to get to the hospital ASAP. I'll go outside and flag the ambulance down. But as Officer Jones moved towards the front door, he felt a sharp pain in his temple. He winced and put his hand up to his head, but the pain was gone, replaced by a slight feeling of nausea and bewilderment. This in turn passed, and a voice spoke in the policeman's ear. Take me with you, it said. I'll show you things you've never seen. Officer Jones looked round and saw the black cat eyeing him dispassionately. Did you like that, Mahler? Yes? Yes. You're especially fond of young ladies, too, aren't you? Yeah. He's really... adorable, Mahler is. You could have had a more interesting name than Mahler, you know, but I have this habit of naming cats after composers, and Mahler just popped into my head when I first saw that ink black coat of yours. Schrodinger, hmm. Hmm, hmm. I don't know. You probably wouldn't like an umlaut in your name, would you? Anyway, I tried to explain quantum entanglement to him when we first listened to this, and, and well, I, I don't think he got it. So, thank you again, Anna. The screen adaptation of her story, Little Pig, by the way, was a finalist in the Shriekfest Film Festival screenplay competition in 2009. That is a great story, by the way, and can be found in Ellen Datlow's most recent year's best horror. You can watch clips from Anna's films, including The Rain Has Stopped, which won two awards at the British Film Festival, Los Angeles, in 2009, and view her full bio on the IMDb. Just put in her name and read. By the way, she also does book trailers. So go to YouTube and put in Anna Taborska and have a look. And thank you, Gareth Stack. Gareth previously narrated several stories for the Starship Sofa, including Terry Bisson's Billy and the Wizard. Today, Gareth was the human voice of Schrodinger and his human. Gareth is a writer, comedian, and producer. He produced two comedy series, The Invisible Tour Guide, a fictional tour of historic Dublin, and The Emerald Arts, a fictional arts program that was broadcast in 2011 on Dublin's Near FM. Gareth has written for a variety of magazines, performed all over Ireland, and has run his own alternative comedy shows, Exchange Words, and 
Marshmallow Ladyboy Jesus, which have featured the best of Irish comedy. And that will be it for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this visit with the ghost of me, and with Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. He's still here, in fur and flesh, along with his consort, the lovely Miss Tabitha. Next week, more of the same, and I'll be back in person. So, remember to stop by the other neighborhoods in the District of Wonders. Remember to send us your stories, your thoughts, your voices, your ten terrifying minutes, and... Well, just keep coming. Keep whispering us about. All right. Up and doing now. Bright and chipper. Head out and find your ways. Oh, one thing. You might want to stick to the main streets tonight. When possible. We have here in Chicago enlisted the aid of stray and feral cats to do neighborhood rodent patrol. They pretty much remain in the small streets and the alleys. And they can be rather difficult. It should be fine, though. Just hurry through the places between the lights along your way. Avoid the scurrying shadows between the buildings, and soon, soon you'll be home, snug, safe, content, in the happy dark with your own perfect pets. You may even let your cat, your dog, your whatever you have, share the bed with you, and from there to share your pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.